Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 11, and our reading this morning are verses 27 through 29. The Bible we are reading this morning tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the uh, mouth of God. I hope you came hungry today, hungry for the word of the Lord. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will enable me to deliver it to you in a way that you can assimilate it. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. By faith he, that is Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. I am amazed at the writer of Hebrews being able to concisely condense a great deal of redemptive history in two verses. And I'm sure that most of you wish that your preacher could do the same. <laughs> I was talking, I was at a Christmas party last night. And I was talking to a musician, and he asked me this question. He said, why can't you just get up and say what you got to say in 15 minutes so we can all go home? And I said, you're a musician, right? And he said, right. I said, why don't you play a concert for 15 minutes and see how many people come back? He said, well, I think I'm right. I think you're wrong. I said, okay, <laughs> fine. But this is an amazing condensation. Um, the whole story of Moses leading out uh, the Exodus, the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of their slavery, is told here in two very concise passages, a very economical way of putting a big story in a small, small amount of time in a very compact space. But it's up to preachers like me to unpack that for you. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look uh, at these two events, Passover and the Exodus, and see how they were for Moses an expression of faith. One of the most important things you can learn as a person is that your faith is only as good as its object. It's only as secure as its object. I remember when I was in high school and we were all walking around trying to be cool and hippies and we would give each other the peace sign and we would say things to each other like, keep the faith, man, keep the faith. 
Or we would say, um, just have faith. In what? I don't know. Just have faith in faith. Just believe in yourself. We were doing all that crazy kind of stuff, and it was pretty stupid. Because we didn't faith has an object. In other words, whatever you trust in is the object of faith. It's like a fairy tale, or it's like you're believing in yourself and your own capacities. But the object of faith is what we're going to focus our attention on this morning. But notice, first of all, that it says, God sent the destroyer of the firstborn. What is that all about? Well, between 3,000 and 4,000 years ago, the Israelites, who were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had settled in Egypt but had grown to be such a great people had grown, grown to be so strong numerically and in many other ways as well that Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians, feared them and decided to oppress them. And the way to hold them down was to con uh, oppress them and he conscripted them into slavery and kept them away from all of the rights and privileges of the rest of the country. And in many cases did some systematic efforts to kill them. At one point, Pharaoh had decided to seek to kill all of the newborn males of the Israelites in hope that if they killed the newborn males, an entire generation would rise up uh, and only female uh, Israelites, and ultimately they would lose, because of the culture of the time, their national identity. None of these things worked. Pharaoh's oppression did not work. It was not effective. But there was regular, intentional, deliberate, and violent oppression visited regularly on the Israelites. And we are told that God had heard their cry. Finally, one day, God comes to Moses and he says to Moses, go to Pharaoh. I've got a message for Pharaoh. And I want you to tell him to let my firstborn son, Israel, go. Let them go. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 4, and around about verse 22, God says, Go to Pharaoh and say, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Well, what, what's he doing? What's he saying here? God is such a communicator, and what he is doing is he is showing Pharaoh the true situation that is occurring at that moment. In those days, the custom was that all of the wealth and all of the inheritance of the family would go to the firstborn son. That was the only way they felt that they could keep the family's wealth intact. And if there were 17 children and it all went to the firstborn son, then that son had to take care of and parents doted on the firstborn son uh, like you wouldn't believe. The firstborn son uh, was like no one to talk about whether that was a wrong custom or a right custom. It was, it was a custom. But what God's custom, which they all knew, and saying, Pharaoh, how would you feel? And the apple of your eye. How would you feel if someone was assaulting him? That's what God is saying to Pharaoh when he tells him that he wants his firstborn son and he wants Pharaoh to let him go. He was saying to Pharaoh in so many words, you are oppressing these people. Now that was a warning, and it was quite a brilliant warning. And it explains the unjust terms of power in the entire world at that time. And he hardened his heart. Plagues of lice, 
plagues of locusts, darkness, other things that destroyed their row. But after many, many chances, and after Pharaoh had trampled on all of these, God in the end finally says something. So about Exodus 11, there's a not let my firstborn son go. I will send the destroyer and to the son of the slave girl who sits at the loom, all will die. Ever has never been heard before and never will be heard again. He sends out the angel of death. He sends out full justice. Exodus, in every case, God had sent out lice, locusts, hail, and some kind of disease. Egyptians suffered, but the land of Israel and the land of Goshen, uh, where they lived, was the thing that's so surprising about the tenth plague. God said, not just to the Egyptians, but to the lights, the destroyer is coming to everybody, and you can only be saved if you take some evasive action. In other words, it's unusual, it seems odd, that the destroyer, why would the destroyer come not only to the Egyptians, but to every door unless there was something on that door? It's because the other plagues were not full justice or not even poetic justice. They weren't commensurate repayment for the violence Pharaoh had been doing to the Israelites. All of these other plagues were really just warnings and assault to Egypt's gods. But they really weren't commensurate repayment. In a sense, occasionally you see this in the Bible, God was letting forth judgment day early. He was letting Judgment Day intrude into this one controlled situation. He was bringing Judgment Day down on this land, but for a brief time. He was literally, at this point, giving people what they deserved. He says, in that case, Israelites will get it too unless they do something. Well, what do you tell them to do? Keep the Passover. Sprinkle the blood. God said to the Israelites, you must kill a little lamb, and you must eat the lamb, and you must spread the blood over the doorpost of your house. And if you do, the justice of death and the death of justice, when it comes by, will pass you by, or will pass over you. The justice will pass over you, and you will be safe and you will be saved. And he said to the Jews, don't you think that, don't think that just because you're Jews, the angel's going to pass you by. Oh no, you must put the blood on the doorpost. You must find shelter under the blood. They did, and the angel of death passed by their homes. But the firstborn from Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the slave girl who sits on the loom, if no blood was applied to the door, no lamb was offered, then they died. The firstborn died. And the Egyptians, after that, let them go. They went out, they escaped, but why? What does the lamb mean? What does the lamb mean? Last week and this week, uh, we've thought about this, uh, and God said to his people, I want you to slay a lamb every year, and I want you to eat it the same way every year. Why? In this ordinance, the death of a lamb and taking shelter under its blood, God gave the Israelites and anyone else who wanted to read the Old Testament a clue to the meaning of the universe. Even though it was a clue, it was incomplete, it was a puzzle, the clue, it was a mystery. 
You remember uh, when we went back and looked at the story of Abraham that God had come to Abraham and said, I want you to take Isaac and offer him up on the mountain as a burnt offering. Offer your son as a burnt offering. And do you remember what we said there? Abraham didn't complain to God. He didn't argue with God. He didn't claim God was unjust. Abraham knew he had a good enough theology to know this. He knew he was a sinner. He knew Isaac was a sinner. And he knew that God is not unjust to ever demand anybody's life. God is not unjust to demand Isaac's life. Not at all. So Abraham wasn't struggling with whether God had the right to be just. He knew God would be just, but he asked himself, is there any way for God to be both just and merciful? He was on the way up the mountain. He was wrestling with this, and Isaac, going up to the mountain with the father, said this, Father, I see the fire. He said, I see the knife. I see the wood. But where's the sacrifice? Suddenly, Abraham got an insight. It was an insight from God. He didn't understand it really, but he said it. He had been sitting in his tent all night, waking up thinking about the same thing, and he was thinking, yes, I know God can't not be just, but I also know that God can't not be merciful. He has to be just. He has to be merciful. But how? How? How is this going to happen? Wait a minute. When Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? Suddenly Abraham said, God will show us a lamb. God will provide a sacrifice. And so he was elated as he understood that something else would die in Isaac's place. God will provide a sacrifice, a lamb, and the lamb will die and Isaac won't have to. So Abraham got the principle and now here in the Passover ordinance, Abraham's story becomes a yearly principle. If a lamb dies, you won't have to. But what in the world does that mean? Any thoughtful person, any thoughtful Israelite over the years did look at it and said, wait a minute, I get the principle, I get the what of the principle, but I don't quite get the how of it. I don't see how in the world the death of a cute little animal would get us out from under something we deserve. How could this be? How could that be possible? And if you want to understand this principle, the clue God leaves in the Old Testament are found in three places. One is in Abraham's walk up the mountain. The second is in Exodus and the ordinance of Passover. And the third is in Isaiah. In a very mysterious statement at one point, in one of his prophecies, he says in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But a servant will show up, God's servant, and God's going to lay on him the iniquity of us all. He will be oppressed, but he will not open his mouth. He will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. All of these clues is this. The idea is if a lamb dies, you don't have to. But how could that be? It came together wonderfully on a day. In the history of redemption, one of the greatest days was the day of the last of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist was with his disciples, and he looked at Jesus of Nazareth, and suddenly he got it. He understood. It all came together by divine revelation. It must have come together because he was thinking about it. And he knew a number of things about Jesus, and he'd been pondering, certainly, the Old Testament. 
Suddenly one day it came together. He looked at Jesus and he said to his disciples, you remember this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, Abraham going up to the mountain and the Passover and what Isaiah said all came together and he says, wait a minute, look at the Lamb of God. Not a Lamb of God, but the Lamb of God. God did not spare our firstborn sons because of the death of some woolly little cute creature. He spared our firstborn sons because he did not spare his only begotten or firstborn son. Behold, that means John the Baptist got it. John the Baptist saying, I get it. Do you get it? Christians need to get it. Put it this way. If you'd grabbed an Israelite on the way to Canaan after the Red Sea, and if you had just come up and said to them, who are you people and what's going on here? Do you know what he would have said? The Israelite would have said, well, I can put it to you this way. I was in slavery under the sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Now God dwells with us, and though we are in a desolate situation right now, he is taking us to our true country. Now, Christian, if somebody grabs you and asks you, who are you people and what's going on here? And if you understood things, you would say, I was a slave under the sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And now, even though there's a kind of desolation around me, He dwells within me, and He is taking me to the true country. It's the same thing. The reason why uh, we are told in Luke chapter 9 when Moses showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses showed up and talked to Jesus and the disciples were there and they overheard it. And in Luke 9, 31, in a way that never completely comes out in your English translation in the Greek, it literally says Jesus spoke to Moses about his own exodus he would accomplish in Jerusalem. It's one of the most powerful and glorious word plays in all of the Bible because the Greek word at the time, Exodus, meant both a death and an escape. A death and an escape. What Jesus was saying to Moses, my death will be the escape for my people. My death will be their Exodus. I'm the lamb. My blood will go over their door. The judgment of God will pass them by, and they will go out free. Do you understand it? Do you get it? Do you do what John the Baptist said you ought to do? Did you hear what he said? He said, friends, you should always be beholding the Lamb of God. Behold, look at, consider, think about, focus upon, look at Jesus as the Lamb, and a tremendous greatness of life will start developing in you. This is the object of our faith. This is the thing we look to, to become people of faith. We've been talking about all of this in Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm going to show you a couple of things that will help you see it even better. We've already talked about the Exodus. We've already talked about Jesus as our Passover. Jesus as the Lamb of God. But there are two things I want you to think about Uh, and leave you with number one we see everybody everybody deserves judgment kind of want to show you what that means and let it have an impact on you 
The thing we learn here is not the Jews' blood that saved them from the wrath of God, but it was the Lamb's blood. And this is radical. Moses specifically told the Jews, listen, the angel of death, the destroyer, this is the justice of God, and when the justice of God comes, if you're not in your house, under the blood of the Lamb, and the destroyer meets you, you're done. Your history, you're gone. God did not send the destroyer to the Egyptians because they were Egyptians, and God did not save the Jews simply because they were Jews. God is no respecter of persons. Moses was specifically saying, it's not your pedigree, it's not your attainment, it's not your obedience to the law, it's not your family, it's not your heritage, it's not your history. Everybody is subject to the destroyer, and anybody can be saved if they're under the blood of the Lamb. Those are the only two distinctions there are. And that's what holds the Bible together. How were Old Testament saints saved? The same way New Testament saints are saved. The blood of the Lamb covers. That's how. Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. He says, pagan and religious, Jew and Gentile, nice and nasty, moral and immoral, are all alike under judgment. We cannot divert ourselves too long to discuss this. This is one of the most important teachings of the Bible. And here it comes out in such vividness. If you and I are in the room, and there are two amoebas in the room, and one of the amoebas is four times the size of the other amoeba, compared to us, that difference is negligible. In other words, doesn't register. They're still invisible. We take no measure. We don't make room for in the same way, here's a person who is four or five hundred percent more moral, more self-controlled, more loving than the one over here, but compared to the standard of God himself, compared to the absolute purity, absolute love, absolute holiness, absolute kindness, absolute truth of God, the differences between you and me are negligible. Negligible. Nothing. The differences between nasty and naughty, the differences between the moral paragons and the moral failures are negligible. That's what the Bible says. Now, let's use another analogy. Let's say you and I decide we're going to broad jump the Grand Canyon. Okay? Now, I'm not the athlete I was when I was 18 to 20 years old. Back then, I would have run and bounded off the edge of the canyon and gone about 20 feet and hit bottom really fast. You may have jumped off and only made 15 feet. You might hit the side of the hill and roll down to your death, but neither one of us make it across. The chasm's too large. And that's what Paul's driving at in the book of Romans, chapter 3. First of all, you who aren't sure what you believe, maybe you're kind of on the outside, maybe you're thinking about God, maybe you're considering Christianity, you've heard about it, you're wondering whether this is for you, here's the good news. This is the good news. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how bad you've ever been. I don't care what your record is. And the gospel, in a sense, doesn't either. People very often say, well, I need God. I need him in my life. I need to connect but I don't know what I, after what I've done and the way I have lived. Don't you see what this is saying? It doesn't matter 
whether you have practically camped at the gates of hell, it doesn't matter whether you're guilty of the worst conceivable sins. This is Las Vegas, and some of you may be. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dark the secret. It doesn't matter what you've been living with. Don't you see? You are no more hopeless than the most respectable man in town. And you're every bit as capable of walking under the doorpost. Do you see it? Do you get it? It's not your blood. It's not your perfection. But it's his perfection that provides us. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Just come. On the other hand, my Christian friends, listen carefully. Do you believe this? Do you really believe we are no different than anybody else? That it's not our blood. We may say this in all sorts of ways. You can easily come into the Christian faith and sort of in deep and profound ways still think what makes you right with God is your own blood. In some cases, there are people in the church who essentially think of themselves as superior because of their family or their character. It's not your blood. A little normal, uh, more normal thing is in a place like Las Vegas, if you've worked hard and you've sweated blood to get where you are and you've done a lot and you've attained and you've performed, there's a tendency to look down your nose at people who haven't at all, who haven't worked hard, who haven't sacrificed, who haven't gotten where you've gotten. It's not your blood we should be open to people who are of different races. We should be open to people who are at different levels of performance. We should be open to people who disagree with us. People who have different approaches, different cultures. Nobody should be more open to people uh, different than them because we know we're all under the destroyer. And it's only the Lamb's blood that makes a difference. We are under judgment. Now just think about what that means. The last thing I want to tell you is that Jesus' death is a propitiation. Now, that's not a word we use a lot, is it? And the word propitiation, uh, a substitute word for that, could be the word satisfaction. There's a sense in which the justice of God has been satisfied. That now God is able not to have his mercy swallowed up by justice or his justice swallowed up by mercy, but to be both merciful and just in the work of Christ, the Lamb of God. It was J.I. Packer who said this, you can pretty well sum up the message of the New Testament by understanding the concept of adoption through propitiation. We have been adopted into God's family. We are now in union with his firstborn. And everything he receives, we receive. Everything he deserves, we get. Everything we deserve, he gets. And he's put his spirit in our heart. Caused us to cry out, Abba, Father. What is propitiation? Well, I'm glad you asked. You came to the right place. The meaning of Jesus' death is that it turns away the justice and wrath of God. Now, if God wasn't a God of wrath, if you thought about it very long, and you ever had anybody do something despicable and horrible to you, and you knew they were going to get away with it and never have to deal with it or pay, you wouldn't like that, would you? But God is a God of wrath. And I know this is an extremely unpopular doctrine. Why would the death of a man 2,000 years ago 
Jesus Christ have any relevance at all to me in 2018? Well, unless you understand him as the Lamb of God, there is no relevance. I've heard people say, well, the good thing about it is we don't believe in the wrath of God and his blood atonement. We believe Jesus' death showed us how much he loved us. He showed us how good it is to sacrifice for other people. And in your effort to get rid of the idea of the wrath of God in order to come up with a more loving concept of God, you have come up with a less loving concept of God. Not a greater one, a lesser one. Don't you know what he did do there for you? The reason the destroyer did not go into the doors where there was blood because the destroyer saw that blood had already been shed. The sword had already come down. Destruction had already happened. So the destroyer didn't go in. It was the wrath that had already fallen that turned away the destroyer. God never takes two payments for the same sin. Ever. One payment has to be made. And when Jesus was on the cross and it got dark outside and there was nothing but darkness that happened inside his heart and a lot of people want to know what happened on the cross what was so bad and if you don't understand him as the Lamb of God you don't understand what he did on the cross was that he took the wrath of God on our behalf I tell you what happened the destroyer the wrath of God came to his door and went in if you want to understand what happens you have to understand that word firstborn. And the reason God keeps calling Jesus the firstborn is not because, by the way, the Bible's trying to keep the law of primogeniture on the books. The reason is God is trying to show you what kind of relationship the Father had to the Son. The Father and Son had a relationship of love we cannot even begin to imagine. Not even begin. The Father is a fountainhead of joy. And whenever the Son turned to the Father to pray to the Father, heaven opened up. Every time a tidal wave of love and perfect intimacy flooded his soul, the source of all the joy and all the love in the universe. And that's what Jesus had. And on the cross, when the destroyer came in, Jesus turned to the Father. And what opened to his view? Nothing but utter darkness. The abyss, hell. He was cut off. The destroyer went in. There are two kinds of suffering that Jesus experienced. He was speared. He was nailed, he was pierced with thorns, he was beaten. The other kind of suffering was the destroyer came to his door. And if you don't believe the destroyer came in, you have no idea what he did up there for you because the physical sufferings were a mere flea bite compared to the spiritual agony of Jesus upon the cross. In your effort to have a more loving God by saying, I don't believe in the wrath of God and the blood of atonement, you now have a less loving God. Let me put it this way. God's, the glory of God's mercy is not that it devours his justice, but that it satisfies his justice. That's what Abraham saw when he understood the Lamb of God. Again, let me say that if, I, if um, you found a person had robbed you, and you'd pull that person into court, and the judge looked down and said, well, yeah, no doubt about it, this guy's guilty, but let's just forget it. Do you know... Why you'd be unhappy? Because mercy devoured justice. 
Mercy had eaten it up, gotten rid of it, and laid it aside. Abraham knew that can't happen. You don't want a God like that. You don't even want a judge like that in your town. You don't want a God like that, but you want a God who is both merciful and just. And on the way up the hill, Abraham said, how can God be just and merciful? Not a merciful God whose mercy devours justice, and not a just God whose justice devours mercy. I can't live with either. How could it possibly be both? And there's one answer, the Lamb. The glory of God is not that His mercy doesn't need payment, but His mercy makes the payment. God is not like these ancient gods who you had to sacrifice to turn aside their wrath, like Agamemnon in the Iliad. He's not getting good winds. He can't go to Troy. So what does he do? He sacrifices his daughter. And the gods say, okay, I'm appeased. Here comes the wind. You say, well, I can't believe in a God like that. You don't have a God like that because pagan gods, you are the one who has to propitiate. You do it. And a lot of you are still doing it because you've turned your religion into commercialism. The reason you come to church, the reason you give money, the reason you pray is you're bribing God. That God will somehow turn aside His wrath. If you're good enough, He'll listen to you. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is God propitiates His own just, justice. Let me close with a very practical point. If you don't have a God both of mercy and justice, if you don't have a God both of incredible grace and holy anger towards sin, you will distort yourself. Distortions will be injected into your life. Think about a God in which mercy devours justice. In other words, if you have a God of mercy and say, I don't believe in a God of wrath, I don't believe in a God of hell, I don't believe in a God who judges people and punishes people, I believe in a God who's a God of love, you are like a child with no boundaries. You ever had the pleasure <laughs> of being around a child who has no boundaries? who someone has never said no to, who someone who you have never crossed his little or her little will, you have a terror in your hands, a holy terror. You know, a lot of people want a manageable deity. We want to mold him into our image, the kind of God we like. And they talk a lot about abusive parents, and the worst possible abuse, not worst possible, but a terrible abuse, is not ever saying no to your child, not ever contradicting your child, not ever confronting your child, not ever saying to them, these are the limits, and not ever going head to head with your child. If you don't do that, that child's going to grow up without boundaries, and that child decides any impulse is okay, and that child grows up with disorientation and a kind of spiritual vertigo. The child grows up not knowing which end is up, and he feels like an orphan, because they are. Therefore, if you are growing up and you've given yourself a concept of a God of mercy only and not justice, you're going to feel like an orphan because you are. If you don't have a God 
who can't say no to some of your deepest desires, if you don't have a God who can cross your will, if you don't have a God who says to you, these things are wrong, and if you say no, I believe in a God who would never ever contradict my deepest feelings. It feels good, so it can't be wrong. I don't believe in a God like that. If you don't have a God who can contradict you, you don't have a God at all. You only have yourself. And you feel like an orphan. On the other hand, if you have a God in which justice eats up mercy, if you have a God who is all standards, all righteousness, all truth, no grace, no mercy, you're being devoured too. You're going to be a driven person. Only love can elicit love. Fear cannot elicit love. You're going to be always fleeing with no one pursuing. You need a God whose mercy... Uh, it, you need not a God whose mercy eats up justice or justice that eats up mercy. You need a God whose mercy satisfies His justice. That's what we need. We need the Lamb of God. The reason Jesus Christ was so weak as the Lamb was because His love was so strong. And the more you look at how you lo He loved you, It'll make you a lion on the inside. It'll enable you to be a lamb on the outside, but you'll be a lion on the inside. You'll be able to be kind to people, gentle to people, no matter what happens. Do you know why you're never going to panic? Do you know why you're never going to go crazy and you'll stay a meek, gentle, peaceful lamb on the time? Because on the inside you're a lion because you know what He did for you. And you're beholding the Lamb of God. And this is the love you want. This is the love you need. This is the love that frees you. This is the love that delivers you. Let God be true and every man a liar. This is the God we have. This is the God in Scripture. The Old Testament God is not different than the New Testament God. We just have a fuller revelation. The Scripture teaches that the wrath of God is growing and building up behind a dam. This is in Romans. And one day the dam's going to break and the wrath is going to come and consume all who don't have the covering and shelter of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb, Jesus, is the fulfillment and embodiment of everything the Old Testament saints hoped for and dreamed of. And He is our life. We are adopted into God's family through the propitiation of His firstborn Son. Let us pray. Father, we pray this morning and we give you praise and thanksgiving for the Lamb especially as we think about it this season, uh, as Jesus comes as a baby, as He is born of the Virgin Mary, and He comes primarily to be the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And I pray that we would behold the Lamb every day. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who are secure and loved and free in the Lamb.
In Jesus' name, amen.